How do you show respect to an elder or uh, an important person that you meet? How do you do that? In American culture, generally speaking, we tend to do that with the words that we choose to use. We refer to someone as sir or ma'am, right? Or hello, distinguished gentleman or something like that, right? We would, we would do that in our, in, our, in our words. But in many cultures of the world, you actually show respect to an elder or an important person or a spiritual guru or whatever with your body. So this one is a pretty familiar one for many of us, but in Japanese culture, you bow at the waist to show respect. The farther you bow, the more uh, deferential you're being, right? Well, the same thing's true in other cultures. In Kenya, I love this, in Kenya, when you want to shake the hand, everybody shakes hands to greet, and to, to greet an elder or someone who's important, you actually hold your arm with your other hand just to show how, how weighty their presence is. I love that. It's like a subtle thing. Everybody does it. It's so cool. Um, but, but one thing that really is sticking with me because of the passage we're going to look at today is what happens in India. I got to spend some time in India, and what I noticed uh, a lot of the time was whenever, um, you know, it's a very socially stratified culture. Whenever someone who was lower on the social strata uh, encountered someone who was dignified or far above them or a spiritual guru or something, what they would do is they would actually bend over and touch their feet. It was a sign of deep respect to say, essentially, like, I am not worthy. I want to connect with you, but I am so unworthy. All I can do is touch the lowest part of your body. It's an act of respect. And it, it actually kind of led to what I consider to be some kind of comical scenes because I went to a few of these, these big rallies where these spiritual guru guys would show up and they'd have their big flowing robes and their big entourage was following them and they're wreathed in flowers and like they're a big deal walking in. And they could barely walk forward because of all the people like throwing themselves down to try to touch their feet. And it was almost funny to me because like they're actually, they, they kind of love it. You know, they love the attention. They also are like trying to get on stage. And so they're just like, get, come on, get off, stop. No, stop. Because, but that's what, what was happening because everybody wanted to show their respect by touching their feet. So I tell you all this because again, the passage that we're looking at today, we see someone who's very low on the social ladder who sees Jesus and touches his feet in a very, well, more than just touches his feet in a way that shows deep honor and respect. So hang on to that image of, of touching an elder's feet because it's going to be important for this passage. So this is the final week of our series, Moments with Jesus. If you haven't been uh, part of this series yet, I'll catch you up really briefly. We are looking at different sort of scenes or, or moments where people encounter Jesus that give us a glimpse at who he is, how he ticks, what he thinks, what he feels. And uh, I think it's been a pretty, pretty uh, encouraging series for us to get to know the character of our Savior. So this is the final week, and we're going to look at the story of a woman who anoints Jesus's feet with oil in uh, Luke chapter 7. So go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there with me. Luke 7, verse 36, page 858 in the house Bibles in the seat in front of you. If you're watching online, hello. No house Bibles where you are, but I'm sure you can find something or use the Grace app. It's all there. While you guys are turning, if it would be okay, I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and then we will get into this passage. So let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for this opportunity for us to come together and to, to listen to your voice and to look at your word. I pray in these next few moments that we would have ears to hear what you have to say for us, uh, and that all of us, we would uh, have those, those walls that, that are built between us and you just torn down like we talked about last week. Ultimately, Father, as I speak, my prayer is that I would simply disappear 
and that your Holy Spirit would remain. We want to hear your voice today. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Luke 7. Now, we looked at another story from Luke 7 earlier, a few weeks ago. The story of, remember, Jesus uh, raising the, the dead boy to life that was the son, the only, the only son of the widow in this village of Nain. Anyway, we looked at that story, and this passage is right after that, pretty close after that, and it is pretty likely, if not definite, that uh, this all happened in that exact same village. So that's just a little, a little tidbit to think about because Jesus has clearly made a name for himself. He just raised the guy from the dead. So everybody was talking about this new rabbi who had come to town. And one of the religious leaders, a Pharisee in this town, decided that he wanted to get to know Jesus better. So he invited him over for dinner. So let's read what happened. Verse 36. <clears throat> one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman's touching him. She is a sinner. Okay, so we'll pause there for a moment. Even though today we're going to look mostly at this immoral woman, this quote-unquote immoral woman, and, and, and her encounter with Jesus, I think it's important to start by looking at what Luke is trying to accomplish. Luke, the author of this book, by telling us the story the way he does. What you see is, obviously, the story starts kind of neutral. Simon, this Pharisee, is inviting Jesus over for dinner, and we don't really know what he thinks or what he feels. Uh, he's curious. He's checking out this controversial new rabbi to, to decide what he thinks about him. But as we'll see in a moment, the story ends kind of open-ended. We have this really scandalous moment that happens, and we just don't know how Simon feels about what goes on there. And I think that Luke is doing this intentionally because what it's doing, he's inviting us as the readers to put ourselves in Simon's shoes. We are asking, he's asking us to think, what do we feel about this scandalous moment? What are we going to decide about who Jesus is, right? So, Let's talk about why this moment is so scandalous, because it may not immediately strike us. It might strike us as a little odd, but, but maybe not scandalous. So why was this such a big deal? Well, we'll start with this. Picture the scene. In that day, to eat, have a dinner party, men, pretty much all men would eat. Women, I don't know, they'd probably not be there, unfortunately. But, but the men would be eating by laying down on their left side, reclining inwards towards a shared table or where all the food was. And so uh, just actually, they do this sometimes in India as well, where you lean in and you use your right hand to, uh, to eat the food while your feet are out in sort of the darkness where the light is in the middle, okay? So you can picture all these men, and there's a whole thing about who sits next to whom. It's a big deal. But everybody's sitting on their left side, leaning in to eat and talk while, I guess, servants and stuff are bringing food and things from the outside. So this is what's going on. Now, this woman at this, at this dinner party, she— breaks in, possibly, or, or at least sneaks into this party because she's not welcome there. She should not be doing what she's doing. She shouldn't be there. So even her presence is already pretty disruptive. But then what she does while she's there is, is even crazier. First of all, she lets her hair down. Now this is unheard. You do not do this. You do not do this. Let your hair down if you were a woman in that day. That was something that was reserved for uh, your husband and, and maybe in your, your 
the presence of your kids, but that's it. You don't let your hair down in public. And she does that, and that's, that's already crazy. But then she doesn't just touch Jesus's feet as a, as a form of respect. She kisses them, and she washes them with her tears. And then she pours out this expensive perfume onto his feet. You can imagine the room was probably, first it probably smelled like whatever they were having for dinner, but then this perfume was probably overpowering. The whole room smelled like this perfume. She, so she's being completely disruptive. And, and what she's doing, the actions that she is doing, they are intense. If you look at the Greek verbs, they're all, they're all uh, continuous, uh, ongoing verbs, and they all kind of flow into one another. It's like she's weeping and bathing and drying and kissing and anointing. You get the sense that this is just this deep, deep overflow, outflow of her emotion from, from deep within her. And again, it's all at the lowest part of Jesus's body, the only place that she feels that she could even begin to have the, uh, the ability to touch. Now, again, I don't know for sure that the cultural norms were the exact same as what I saw in India, but, but I think it is a very fair assessment that, that touching the feet of a respected person is a way of showing honor and dignity. But what she does it goes way beyond that. All the, the kissing and the, the tears and all of that, it was totally inappropriate. Even if it was a normal, respected thing to touch someone's foot, it was, it was totally inappropriate at a dinner party with all the, the mucky mucks of name, right? That, that, this is, by the way, last night I uh, decided that was a new band name that I'm, I'm claiming. So if you're trying to start a band called the Mucky Mucks of Name, you can't because I already, I already called dibs on that. All right. All right. So all right, we've got this scandalous disruption to a dinner party already, just by the fact that she's a woman, by the fact that she's doing what she's doing. But it is made even more scandalous because of who she is, because of who she is. This phrase that Luke uses, immoral woman, uh, or literally a woman who was a sinner, that is almost undoubtedly code for her being a prostitute. That's what most scholars agree on. This, this is almost entirely the, the case, that she was a prostitute. She sold her body for sex. And in a village the size of Nain, she would have obviously had a reputation. Everybody would have known who this woman was. This is just a part of it. Now, it's possible that she chose this profession because she just wanted to make a buck. She was greedy, so she decided to do something that was against the social norms so she could get rich or something. That's possible, but it's also entirely possible that she was in this profession through no choice of her own. I, I spent some time several years ago in Cambodia working with a ministry that, that helps to rescue girls from the sex industry. And I got to tell you, the vast majority of the girls and young women that I heard about or met, they were not in this industry by choice. Many of them were sold into it by their own parents out of economic desperation. Many of them found that that was the only choice they had to survive and even feed their children. So it's entirely possible, and I don't know, but it's entirely possible that this woman was not just in this profession to make a buck, but that she was in it because she didn't have any other choice. Regardless, though, regardless of how she found herself in this job, with a, with a job like that, this woman would have been completely, completely outcast and considered ritually unclean. Ritually unclean, someone that you avoid because you, you got to shame them. You got to keep them at arm's length because her ritual uncleanliness was contagious. If she touched you, you became ritually unclean. And it, it, it's a, a distance between you and God. You have to go be cleansed by the, by the priests or whatever to be able to, to enter back into God's presence. So 
For this woman, this ritually unclean prostitute, for her to even touch the feet of a godly rabbi, this is totally out of line. It's totally scandalous in and of itself. But again, she didn't just touch him, did she? No, she bathed his feet in her tears. So I hope you get the sense that this moment is a scandal. This moment is wild. It's crazy. And, and this is a, an unsavory woman doing something scandalous. And here's where the real scandal comes in. Jesus, he doesn't seem to care. Jesus doesn't seem to, to do anything. I mean, if, if he knew her reputation, he wouldn't want her anywhere near him, right? Right? Because you, you don't let a prostitute touch your feet, not if you claim to be a godly rabbi. At least that's what the Pharisee thinks. That's what Simon thinks. And so while this woman is anointing his feet, Jesus responds to what Simon has to say. I want you to picture that because all of this is happening. This woman is still bathing and weeping and anointing. She's doing all of this. And then then we read what happens next. Uh, Verse 40. So Simon says if he knew, he wouldn't let her do this because she's a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon says. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave both of them, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now I love that moment. I love it. It's so powerful to me. This whole thing, I mean, we're going we're gonna to break it down, but this whole thing to me just blows my mind, especially verse 44. Verse 44, where Jesus turns to this woman. Remember, she's an outcast. She's a nobody, right? She does not deserve to be there, not even in their presence. She deserves to be ignored and shunned and, and, and cast out, and yet Jesus looks right at her. He turns away from the dinner party, away from the distinguished guests, and he looks right at this outcast woman. He acknowledges her humanity. He gives her dignity in that moment. It's beautiful. Now, Luke, in this segment that we just read, he includes two little plot twists that the reader doesn't see coming. And it's a way of just kind of surprising us with some details that that we didn't realize until now. The first of which uh, is the fact that Simon had neglected his duties as a host. Simon didn't do the things he was supposed to do. He was supposed to have his servants wash Jesus' feet, and they didn't do that. He didn't greet Jesus with a holy kiss. He's supposed to do that. He didn't anoint his head with oil. He was supposed to do that. If you respected somebody back then, if you had some respected person coming to your house for dinner, you were going to do all of those things and probably more than that. He didn't do any of it. 
So Simon didn't respect Jesus. But this woman, this woman, she did all of those things and more. She went way beyond them. She didn't just wash his feet. She washed them with her tears. She didn't just give a kiss of greeting on the cheek. She kissed his feet. She didn't put a dab of olive oil on his head. She poured out expensive perfume on his body. This woman honored Jesus extravagantly. And this Pharisee didn't didn't even lift a finger. It's almost as if she actually knows who Jesus really is. It's almost as if she understands who he is, what he deserves. And Simon the Pharisee just missed it. Which leads to the second plot twist in this story. And this one's a bit more subtle, but it's there. If you look at verse 47, Jesus says, Her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. And so she has shown me much love. Have been. And so she shows. In other words, this has already happened. This has already happened. The implication here by this language is that Jesus had already met this woman. Not only did he already know her profession, her reputation, but he had already forgiven her sins. Now Luke doesn't tell us when or how, but, but he spent some time in this village of Nain. At some point, Jesus encountered this woman in her shame, in her guilt, in her sin, and he forgave her. And so what we see here, this is not a, a woman pleading for forgiveness. This is a woman pouring out her gratitude for what has already been forgiven. While Simon the Pharisee is still on the fence about whether this rabbi is even legit, this woman is honoring her Savior with everything she has because she understands who he really is. She gets it. She knows who he is. He is a Savior who wipes the slate clean. Jesus wipes the slate clean. That's who he is. Think about all this from her perspective. Like, just be in her shoes for a second, right? You're an outcast woman. You're unclean. You're a nobody. You don't want the job that you have. It's dirty. It's disgusting. It's shame-filled. It's humiliating. And every day that goes by, every day that you're trying to survive, you know that you're just getting further and further away from the God that your people follow. But then this holy man, this, this prophet of God, this miracle worker who raised that widow's son from the dead last week, he looks at you, looks you in the eyes, acknowledges your humanity and tells you that your sins are gone. What wouldn't you do to honor him? Why, what, what would you even begin to do to say thank you to him? I'll tell you what you would do. You would grab the one valuable possession that you have this expensive perfume that you use to make a living and you would pour it out on him and you would weep and bathe and, and, and uh, anoint his feet and kiss his feet. Anything that you could do as the tears stream down your face to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for setting me free. Towards the beginning of Luke's gospel, we see a... a a moment that is, frankly, probably the most important passage in all of Luke and Acts. It's Jesus describing what he's here to do. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and he says this in Luke 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. 
And Jesus finishes reading that and he says, and now that is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is today. You see, this is the very reason that Jesus was here to give hope to the poor and the downtrodden, to set people free from the things that they were chained by, to proclaim that captives would be released. Now that word released in Greek, it's the exact same word as forgiven. Forgiven and released, it's the same thing. Uh, He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be forgiven, will be released. It's the word that Jesus uses for this woman in verse 48. He says to the woman, your sins are released. You are forgiven. You are no longer a captive. You're no longer a slave. See, the prophecy of Isaiah was starting to come true, and it was coming true for her. The time of the Lord's favor had come, which is why Jesus tells this woman at the end, he says, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in what? Go in peace. Peace for Jesus is not just an absence of war, an absence of violence. Not, that's not what he's talking about. Peace for Jesus means a complete coming of God's new creation to the earth, the kingdom of God here and now, a return to Eden for humanity. Peace for Jesus means things on earth the way that God intends them to be. His rule and reign as the king of the universe complete. Peace for Jesus means wholeness. It means life. It means abundance and joy and harmony between neighbors and dignity. And most of all, peace. It means the presence of God among us. This is why Jesus proclaims to this broken, outcast, sinful woman, the time of the Lord's favor has come for you. It's come for you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus wipes the slate clean. Jesus wipes the slate clean. And now this forgiven woman could begin to live the kind of life that God has always intended for her to live. A life of peace and wholeness. Lived in the presence, the very presence of God. She is not an outcast anymore. Let me ask you this. Has the time of the Lord's favor come for you? Have you been forgiven? Has Jesus wiped your slate clean? Are you going in peace in your life? If so, what's your response to that? I'll tell you, for me, when I think about the the grace of God, when I think about what Jesus has accomplished for me, the fact that my sin, my brokenness, my shame, my filth is all just washed away in his love, it staggers me. I can barely wrap my mind around it. And yet if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. All of it. See, you and I, we're no different from this woman. We are her. We are all filled with shame. We have all fallen short. We have all made mistakes and we have all sinned. So why would our response to the extravagant love of our Savior be any different? Look, I hope, I hope, especially if you've been a a follower of Jesus for a long time, I hope that this story, this moment with Jesus is a renewed reminder 
to pour out whatever we have in our gratitude to him. He deserves it all. He deserves it all. So let this be a reminder. How are we gonna express our gratitude to Jesus? Have you thanked him recently for wiping your slate clean? Or maybe you haven't yet experienced forgiveness. Maybe maybe you haven't yet uh, had your slate wiped clean. Maybe you've never asked, you've never experienced that. You don't even really know what the grace of God means for you. If that's you, if that's you, I have one question for you. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? We just spent the last month getting to know Jesus. And what we have seen is we have seen that he is a savior who has mercy. He calls broken people to follow him, right? We saw that he has compassion, deep, heartfelt compassion for the things that we are facing, the things that we're going through. We saw that he is God himself, that he is divine, that he willingly stepped into our world to bring us life and hope and peace. We looked last week at the fact that he is is passionate in ripping down any wall that stands in our way. He cleans out the the temple to make room for us. And we have seen him here that he is a God of deep and powerful grace. Jesus wipes the slate clean. Our shame, our sin, our filth doesn't matter. It's gone. All of that, all of that is who Jesus is and who he wants to be for you. So if you are still a prisoner, if you are still chained to your sin, to your shame, to your past, if you feel like an outcast, what are you waiting for? I'll ask it again. What are you waiting for? Our Savior is faithful and he is just to forgive, to forgive you. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask and then you and me and all of us, we can fall again at his feet and pour out our gratitude for his unbelievable grace. No, I don't understand. I don't understand why he would do this for us. I don't get the love of God. It's too far beyond my comprehension, but I will tell you it is real and it transforms us. Now, even as I say all that, I know some of you, some of you somewhere are thinking this. You're thinking, okay, that sounds great, but it can't be true for me. I'm too messed up. Barry, you don't know. You grew up as a pastor's kid. You don't even have any idea what I've been through, what I've done, right? You're thinking that. You're thinking, I'm too filthy. I'm too soiled. I don't want to bring that corruption to Jesus. I don't want to uh, bring that into, the, into this gathering of his people. I'm too messed up. Well, guys, that's the way the Pharisees thought. And I'm going to tell you the truth. Your filth cannot soil Jesus. Your corruption doesn't affect him. Your, 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 all of your mess— It doesn't stick to him. Do you know why? Because it's his purity that's contagious. His purity catches. You touch him, he makes you clean. Don't buy the lie that you are too far gone for God. You're not. He loves you. He wants you in his arms, in his family. Will you accept that? And believe it as true. Will you trust Jesus to forgive you? Because he will. He will. You ask and he is faithful to wipe your slate clean. What wouldn't we give to say thank you for that? 
Take a moment. Place yourself in the story of the woman anointing Jesus with oil. The evening grows dark as you run up the street toward the house of the Pharisee. You hope you aren't too late. Heart pounding, you tighten your grip on the jar in your hands as your palms grow slippery with sweat. You sneak through the back door, keeping a careful eye out for servants or anyone else who might throw you out. There he is. You've only met him once, but you would recognize him anywhere. He's reclining with his friends and some respected town leaders. Your heart beats even faster. It's now or never. Ignoring everyone, you kneel behind him. You can't seem to get the jar open, and you suddenly realize that you're already weeping. The tears fall on your hands, on the jar, and on his feet. You finally open the jar and pour out the oil, not caring or even listening as the men start to notice you and question your presence. Until you met this man, you had no choice but to listen to their harsh words and feel their disgusted looks. You were trapped, a prisoner of both your circumstances and your decisions. But he saw you. He saw you in all your shame, and he treated you with kindness and dignity. And you love him for it. This oil is the only thing of worth in your miserable life, and you just want him to have it. You know you will never deserve his kindness or be completely free of your shame, but you want to thank him somehow for that one moment of freedom he gave you when you first met. You find yourself wiping away your tears with your hair, knowing this is absurd. Your behavior is completely unacceptable. But it doesn't matter. Only Jesus matters. You hear him speaking with Simon, and then he turns to you, and he reaches out to touch your arm. Your sins are forgiven. Forgiven? You stare at him in shock. Could this be? You continue to weep. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How do you feel in this moment? Jesus set you free.
In the story, this woman anointed Jesus' feet with oil to show her gratitude. How will you show yours? Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.